And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Earlier this month, Brandon Johnson captured national attention with his election as the 57th mayor of my hometown, the city of Chicago. A county commissioner and longtime teachers union organizer, Johnson started the race at 2% in the polls and built a multiracial, progressive coalition in defeating eight candidates, including the incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot. I sat down this week with the mayor-elect, who takes office on May 15th, to talk about his extraordinary journey to this auspicious moment and his plans for the city's future, including the vexing problem of crime and public safety. Here's that conversation. Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson, it's great to see you. Congratulations. Extraordinary election, really. Well, thank you so much, uh, David. It's good to be with you all. And it is a very exciting, very humbling moment for me. And of course, an exciting moment, I believe, for the city of Chicago. You know, we uh, <laughs> I was thinking as I was walking over here uh, about the time that uh, President-elect Obama and I, we, we, we were all traveling to Washington and there was a limo, a presidential limo that President Bush sent to pick him up and take him to where we where he was staying, and so well, why don't you ride with me? So I jumped in the back seat, and of course we both remembered when we were when he was running for the Senate, and we were walking around with a tin cup trying to get people to uh, support us. And we looked down at the phone, and uh, there was there was a phone there, and there were all these numbers, that, you know, Vice President, uh, and he just looked at me and said, "What a long, strange trip, huh?" <laughs> and uh, yeah. and you. You must feel that way, too, because uh, all of a sudden you're two weeks away from taking over this, what, 18 billion, 19 billion dollar corporation and uh, more important stewardship of of a city where where people's lives are kind of in your hands. That's right. I've had multiple moments where I've begun to just digest what just happened. And, you know, you never know what that thing is going to be um, that starts to resonate, you know, with, with me of what just happened. And, um, you know, you know, honestly, it was a very emotional moment, but um, there were two firefighters Mm -hmm. who um, lost their lives serving the city of Chicago. Yes. And I attended after you were elected, after I was elected. Yeah. And I attended both of those services or those moments for me. It really began to sink in of the incredible responsibility that I do have as mayor of the city of Chicago, where there are individuals who are on the front line every single day. And it is their job um, to keep everyone safe at the expense of their own in, 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 in these instances. And what an incredible responsibility to have. And thank God. I'm grateful to all of our first responders. You know, Mitch Landry, and I don't want to, I, I hesitate to tell you this story as you're just setting out on this mission, but I, I, I did a podcast like this with him at the end of his eight years as mayor of New Orleans. And I said, and we were walking along the street and he's pointing out all the things that they were able to accomplish. And I said, you sound like a guy who's going to miss this job. He said, I'm going to miss this part of the job. <laughs> I'm not going to miss having a cell phone strapped to me at night so that I don't miss an emergency that comes in the middle of the night. It's a, it's an awesome responsibility, but 
before we get to any of that, you have an extraordinary story, uh, not just the election, but your personal story. And I really want people to, and I want to explore it. But you know, first of all, the thing that strikes me right away is one of 10 kids. Mm. Yes. 10 kids in, in Elgin, Illinois, suburb yeah. of, of Chicago. Mm. Three-bedroom house. Kind of, roughly, yes. <laughs> Two-ish, but yes, three bedrooms. <laughs> One bathroom. One bathroom. Yeah. I saw you said somewhere you honed your negotiating skills around that bathroom time. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with that many siblings, my parents were also foster parents. So there were times where, you know, our home, not quite the size of city council, <laughs> but, yeah. you know. Very few things are the size of the Chicago city council. Exactly right. That's a whole 50 other, members, That yes. might be another podcast <laughs> for someone else. <laughs> you know, but, you know, there were times, of course, where it was actually quite chaotic. And, you know, in retrospect, it's hard to even imagine how, you know, you survive those moments. You know, clearly we leaned on one another. My father's a pastor. My grandfather is a pastor or was a pastor. Uh, my father has since retired um, from having served as a pastor for, you know, almost forty years, and so we leaned on our faith, right? You know, but, do you still? Oh, absolutely! It's a big part of of who I am. Um, you know, there's a a real strong tradition, particularly here in Chicago, around you know Black liberation theology, right? Where, um, you know, our faith is oftentimes expressed through the lens of our hopes for you know, economic security and housing and healthcare, all the different things, of course, that I ran on um, that, you know, it wasn't, you know, I didn't have to be a part of a political wing of the democratic party to believe in, in, and the type of justice that I speak of. I mean, this is a part of my faith and I'm def definitely tethered to it. Tell me about your folks. You said your father was a pastor. I know your mom passed away quite young. She was young and, you know, it was a very difficult time for my family. Um, you know, my mother had a rare heart disease and um, it came at a time in which my father um, was unemployed because he was fired from his state job. And thank God for AFSME, his union, that um, began to intervene and filed a grievance. He eventually was restored. But in the in that in that time frame, we didn't have health insurance and you know, because of this rare heart disease. And my mother actually received a heart transplant and then her body just eventually rejected it because we just could not afford the medication um, to, to maintain um, her new heart. In fact, when I ran for County Board of Commissioners, my, my siblings assumed this took place, but my father admitted for the first time um, that, you know, the medication that my mother was on, it was just so expensive um, that, you know, they had to, you know, distribute it in a way that mm -hmm. was not, according to the doctor's uh, prescription. Yeah. Yeah. What was, what, how did that impact on your family, her illness, her, her passing? Well, the illness was certainly, um, was a struggle because in the meantime, before the heart transplant, my mother had a defibrillator inside. And so her heart would just literally stop in the middle of a conversation. And, you know, <laughs> it's amazing what, how, how children will adjust and adapt to an environment. And so we had become accustomed to essentially, you know, losing not just consciousness, but but leaving um, her body. And the defibrillator, defibrillator would eventually, you know, jumpstart her heart again. But, you know, when it, be when, scary it was kids. very scary for yeah. children and we had gotten so adjusted to it 
um, when we would have relatives over or friends over, you know, you know, we would be upstairs or outside and, you know, one of my mother's sisters would be sitting with her and, and my mother would, you know, her heart would fail and all of the panic would just kick in with, you know, whomever, you know, were sitting around her. And then me, you know, at 16 years old and my sister at 14, and we would just come in and so casually and, you know, with some level of calm because we have gotten accustomed to it um, to help, you know, nurse her, um, you know, you know, back. And it was very stressful um, at that time. And it's, again, another um, it's another experience that has led me to fight for health insurance and public health because public health was a very much part of my life when my father did lose um, his health insurance. And if it were not for public health, um, my struggle with asthma um, could have been far more severe. I just uh, spoke to a group yesterday and I talked about, I have a daughter with a chronic illness, epilepsy, and started when she was quite young. And uh, we had insurance because I was a reporter at the Tribune, but it was. It turns out they didn't cover any of the medications that she needed, which were quite expensive, and uh, and we couldn't get other insurance because she had a pre-existing condition. So that's why the Affordable Care Act meant so much to me, uh, because I knew what families struggle with. We almost went bankrupt from that experience. So, yeah. So you you went to school and and got a bachelor's degree, a master's degree in education. In between you, you did a few political stints. And I wanted to ask you, was it always in your head that you were uh, going to be in some, at some time that you would run for public office? Was this, you worked for two state senators. One of them, Don Harmon, is now the president of the Illinois Senate, which by the way, must be a handy relationship <laughs> to have right now. Good to have a friend in high places. Mm. But tell me about you. Uh, about politics and and what drove you in that direction? So it was never a part of the plan, uh, you know, not at least the plan that I had, you know, written uh, for myself. You know, I I always, you know, believed that I would eventually go into um, public education, teach, maybe run a school building, maybe even a school district one day. I mean, that's, uh, you know, the trajectory that I believe that I would um, be most um, – it would just be most beneficial that that's where my skill sets were. And um, here's how it went down though. So um, working in non-for-profit world, the non-for-profit world, um, you know, money became very difficult for non-for-profit spaces um, to access. Right. And, you know, at that time, this up and coming state Senator um, who represented Oak park in the Mm -hmm. West side of Chicago, I went to go visit him because I wanted to make sure you know, he was going to do right by the human services world. And, you know, I was unemployed at the time. I actually had lost a job and I was receiving some unemployment benefits. And so when I met Don at the time, he, he, I was frustrated because he ran unopposed. And I thought to myself, this is not democracy. Now, my opinions may have shifted a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I wanted to hold him accountable. And so I went to talk to him. What's your commitment to social services, edu- education? And he said, here, here are my commitments. And I, and he said, well, where are you working? And I said, I'm not working right now. And my good buddy who was his chief of staff or district director at the time basically said, no one comes into a political office that doesn't have a job that doesn't ask for a job because that was never my intentions. And so of course he hired me and I was making, 
I won't tell you how much I was making because I, I don't want to embarrass Don right now. <laughs> um, 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 but working four hours a day in his office as um, constituent services, the director of constituent services. And, you know, then eventually I left his 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 office because um, I went back to working for the new city YMCA, the YMCs of mm-hmm. Chicago. And of course, the the. Um, tr- uh, the shift that was taking place in Cabrini Green, the new city YMCA um, was shut down and our state rep, Deborah Graham, was in need of a chief of staff. And so I was asked to 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 do that work. And Senator Harmon has always said, you're the only person who gets into politics who tries to get out of it <laughs> because I, I get hired by him. I leave. I go back to what I, what is my passion Um it gets interrupted again because of just, again, not enough resources. I become chief of staff for, for Deborah Graham. She's state rep while working on my master's degree to become a teacher because my desire is to get out of politics. And that has just really been the trajectory. Um, because once I become a teacher, um, a buddy of mine that I grew up with is a former student of Karen Lewis. At Lane Tech. Former, uh, the, yeah. the late uh, uh, president of the Chicago Teachers Union. And they were looking for, yes, and she's an incredible woman. And, of course, I'm looking forward to having a little bit more discussion around um, um, her life and what led me into this role. You know, but he um, reaches out to me because uh, President Karen Lewis asked my buddy to come work for the Chicago Teachers Union. And my buddy, so he, he, he kept to the plan. I mean, it was always our goal to become principals and maybe administrators, superintendents. And he's like, look, Karen, I'm not interested in working for the union. Uh, I'm still committed to becoming a principal, which he is today, by the way, at Westinghouse College Prep. He says, you should meet my friend Brandon. And then that's what led to me ultimately becoming a, an organizer. Yeah, I know you, you taught in a school by Cabrini Green, a generous school, and then you you were at Westinghouse for a short time, but you really didn't teach very long. You, 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 you shifted direction. Tell me why that was appealing to you. Well, the best job that I've ever had is still teaching seventh and eighth graders, social studies and reading. Um, I wanted an, I wanted an opportunity to teach at the high school level um, just because of the way the Chicago public schools operate the departmentalization of middle school is something that we have not completely achieved. We've gotten better at it, but we do not have an official middle school model. It's sort of left to the local school to help adapt to that middle school model. And it's important that we have that model because there's a lot, there's a lot of research around the type of departmentalization in the adolescent development that occurs during that time period and how education plays a role in that. And so um, what caused the shift was once I left Jenner, and taught at Westinghouse, you could see the stratification that exists within school communities. It wasn't just, you know, where, you know, more affluent or wealthier residents live. It was also a stratified system, you know, within communities that struggled. And Westinghouse, Garfield Park, that community has been described as a developing nation because the violence in per capita reflects that. However, when you have a school district that selects who gets to have more access um, and then who is determined to have less access um, that really began to frustrate me. My politics developed really while teaching in Cabrini. Um, my push or impetus to go into organizing was provocated by actually teaching in a selective enrollment school. 
And it wasn't something that I thought I was going to do permanently. You know, I thought, look, I'll become an organizer. You know, we'll fight for a good contract. We'll connect the schools to the school communities so that the learning conditions, the teaching conditions can be aligned. And then I'll go back to teaching. I'll get my PhD. I'll eventually become a principal. And then, you know, life will be good. Um, what happened, though, was at the time in which we were organizing, as you know, David, you know, there was a lot of debate around the role of um, um, active unionism and social justice unionism. And as I begin to move around the entire city um, and, 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 and really feel the stratified school district and the frustrations that parents had, it did it did provoke me that much more to, to engage more politically. Now, remember I had served state Senator right, Don right. Harmon. I yeah. had served you you, know, you state representative yeah, Deborah it Graham. unfamiliar to you. It wasn't. Yeah. It, and also the union itself became much more political in terms of uh, encouraging people to organize politically, encouraging people to run for office, which you eventually did. Uh, so talk about that decision to run for county commissioner. Yeah, so we had a couple of, um, I would just say battles, political battles, to see how, how our organizing would, how, how, how the electoral space would react to our organizing. People agreed with us, generally speaking, um, really in a very substantial way, um, what neighborhoods should have and what they should look like in order for equity and parity to really exist. The question was, could you get elected around those ideas? Like you can mobilize around those ideas, but can you get elected around those ideas? And, you know, I was approached and asked, like, would you consider? And at the time, the person who was in the seat was contemplating running for board president. Mm -hmm. And so it just, it opened up a conversation that would have otherwise never happened. And because there was that contemplation, folks were like, look, if this happens, you should really consider um, moving in this direction um, it's a large district. It's city and suburban healthcare, the criminal justice system, housing, all of these dynamics that we care about that we've been organizing around. You could carry out that vision politically, electorally running for this office. Well, the individual decided to run for reelection, but the people who had had this conversation with me said, look, if you continue, we'll, we'll be there for you. And, and so it was a combination of, the conversation opening up because of what was being contemplated by the incumbent. But it was also really motivated by the opportunity to really lay out a progressive, bold vision around healthcare, around housing, around our, our justice system. And, and at that moment, you know, because of just all that I had experienced up until that point, it just made, it made perfect sense to go for it. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. You have been a progressive force on the uh, county board, and I know you're proud of that record. One piece of it I need to talk about, because it got so much attention when you were running for mayor, and that was around the issue of, uh, of policing. The county has its own, obviously, it runs the county jail, it has a sheriff's police, it has a criminal, and, and, and the court. So it's integrally involved with the criminal justice, with the justice system generally. Uh, and you passed a resolution after the George Floyd uh, uh, murder, uh, saying that uh, the uh, the county should redirect funds from policing and incarceration to public services not administered by law enforcement that promote community health and safety equitably, and that led to a discussion on a radio show, in which you were asked about the defunding police, and this has been replayed so often in Chicago that I'm almost bored reading it. But I need to I need to talk to you about it. Uh, you were asked about. Um, President Obama actually called defunding police a snappy slogan, and you said, I don't look at it as a slogan. It's an actual, real political goal. Tell me about what your philosophy of of public safety is and uh, policing. Do you think policing is necessary? Uh, and how do you see it moving forward uh, in a city that where public safety is a, a huge concern right now? It is. It, uh, um, it's uh, it's a real problem, quite frankly. You know, and uh, unless another historian offers up a, a, a different perspective, um, I may be the first mayor um, to wake up in a neighborhood that is one of the most violent neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. I don't know if any other mayor um, has that story, and so I live it. We love Austin, my wife and I. We love raising our children in Austin on the west side of Chicago. It's a beautiful community and it has suffered um, tremendously because of disinvestment. And as a result of it, um, you know, the violence and the trauma that comes with poverty is playing out in the most gruesome of ways. And it's not just about, you know, schools being closed and mental health centers being shut down. It's the fact that there's just really limited opportunity there. And we've had gunshots right outside our front door. We've had to change a window from a gunshot that has come through our home. So we live it every single day. And, you know, my philosophy is pretty straightforward. So Let me just inter- can I just interrupt for you one yeah. second? This is, I think all the time about the PTSD that children who grow up in neighborhoods where gun violence is so prevalent that everyone knows someone 
who's lost someone or knows someone who's been lost, and you live with that constant concern. Um, this is not the way human beings are meant to live. So, Thank you. And thank you for slowing me down a little bit, because it is something that, you know, that, that because it has happened um, with such frequency, um, we don't slow down enough to really um, digest um, the trauma um, that comes with that and the conditions that break out as a result of that trauma. And it's real to me. It's real to my family and it's real to my The neighbors. other thing is that so, much, so many people in our city, um, until fairly recently, this was less of an issue. Uh, and so you watch the news and it's like, this is happening somewhere else. This, this isn't happening, you know, here. And we treat it like it's Iraq or, or something. And, uh, that's no longer the case because, you know, we've seen an, uh, an outbreak of, of, uh, you know, carjackings and other things throughout the city. Now people are saying, well, this affects me, but there also should be concern about kids who live with this and have lived with this for generations. Well, I'm glad you said that because I actually had a number that was smaller. It's actually a little, it's a bigger number. Um, um, it's reported that, you know, nearly 60% of the violence that occurs in the city of Chicago, it takes place in 6% of the city that with the um, reaction to, to the violence that has, um, has been pervasive, there is still a more hyper-concentrated space in which it takes place and it's neighborhoods like the one I'm raising my family in. And so I believe over the last four years, um, 315, if not more homicides have taken place just in Austin, my neighborhood. That's more homo. There are more homicides in my, in my neighborhood, um, than many of the other neighborhoods that people are concerned now um, have experienced, you know, come, you know, combined. Right. And so my philosophy is pretty straightforward. First of all, I believe that it's important that, that we recognize that we can run on our values, that we don't have to allow, you know, individuals, whether they're on the right, that whether they take conservative uh, views on public safety, um, to present, um, public safety through the lens of, of, of an, a more antiquated approach that has not proven to be effective. Right. And that's, you know, locking people up and um, adding more police to, um, to the roles, if you will, where in the city of Chicago, we are spending more per capita than New York and Los Angeles. And those, those cities have less violence. Yeah. And so when it comes to this, particular we do have, we should point out, we do have, that is absolutely true, and it's a very, very important point. We, we've lost, uh, we, we have 1,700 fewer now than when Mayor Lightfoot uh, took office. So I don't know if you can uh, correlate the increases in crime uh, to that or not, but we, we'd both agree policing is necessary. No one disagrees that policing is necessary. The question is, is, do we have smart policing? And right now we do not. All right. You have a very reactionary approach while not addressing the root causes. And so this is why I've said repeatedly 200 more detectives that are trained and promoted so that we can solve yeah, crime. We have a pitiful rate of uh, solving of these. Homicides. Especially in the yeah. very neighborhoods where there is more of a propensity for the violence to take place. Mm -hmm. Right. Like Austin, Garfield mm -hmm. Park, Inglewood, Roseland. But I also think it's important to note with that resolution, David, 
is that that resolution spells out how the resolution you passed at the the county board. It's very specific about who should administer these services and who should not. Right. You think police are being asked to do things they shouldn't be asked to do. They're being asked to do their job and someone else's. And here's um, more proof and evidence. The Los Angeles Police Department, it's, it's an article, March 23rd, I believe, the Los Angeles Times released an article. They didn't call it Treatment Not Trauma. That's what I, we call it here in the city of Chicago. But it's the same idea where we need mental health support, EMTs, to respond to what ultimately 40% of the 911 calls are, which they're mental health crises. Mm-hmm. And so we're asking police officers um, to serve as marriage counselors, as mm-hmm. social workers, mm-hmm. mental health providers. And many of our police officers need mental health support themselves. I'm saying we need to alleviate and relieve police officers from the responsibility that we can actually have an entire industry provide support. For. So I totally agree with you. And I think that um, I think it also frees police up to do the kind of work that you need police to do, which is like tracking down people who actually commit Violent Especially crime. when we know where it is more likely to take place. It would free up law enforcement to do that. So here's my concern for you and for the city. I think the structural roots of crime need to be addressed. The uh, the way police are, what police are asked to do needs to be. I agree with all of that. All of these seem like long-term plays to me. Uh, these are going to require time and investment and persistence Uh, And they're important. Um, We just had an incident in downtown Chicago uh, that got a lot of attention, a kind of wilding thing in the around Millennium Park, which is, you know, sort of a centerpiece place, gathering place in Chicago. Uh, People were shot. I think people were killed. Um, And uh, the summers traditionally have been very, very bad in terms of violence if I'm you and I'm sitting where you are, I want to have the time to implement these big structural changes and changes in policy and changes in approach that ultimately may yield real fundamental improvements. I want to have the time to do that. That requires getting reelected. And if there aren't answers to these short-term, uh, you know, the short-term crisis, um, I, I don't know how much patience uh, people will have. You don't have a police superintendent right now. The police superintendent resigned the day after Mayor Lightfoot lost uh, in the general election. You have to choose a new one. You have to plan for the summer. Uh, I'm looking at your face and I'm thinking, yeah, there's a lot of, this is the burdens that you've, this is a downside of the upside. Uh, the burdens that you've assumed. What do you do about that? What do you do about the short-term problem? How do you, uh, what are you thinking about a police superintendent? How do you win over the rank and file of the police who've been, you know, frankly, in the middle of a campaign that you're, you know, you get depicted as a cartoon character uh, and, uh, you know, the police union uh, here, here the, the head of the police union is quite bombastically right-wing. So how do you deal with all of that? Hmm. Well, one, I won't have to do it alone. That's the encouraging um, thing about this moment is that whether it's the faith community, um, CEOs, executives, owners, um, uh, other elected officials, um, there are people who are committed um, to making sure that we have 
really a better, stronger, safer Chicago. And quite frankly, David, I don't believe that the vision that I have for the city of Chicago um, is a long-term plan. I've said this repeatedly. Um, If it's really just simply about hiring more officers, it takes 18 months to, to fully put an officer on, on the streets of the city of Chicago. That, that is more long-term than mine. I'm saying double the amount of young people that we hire. And here's the thing. Corporations are stepping up. They're making commitments that we're going to hire more young people. We can do that immediately. Again, training and promoting 200 more detectives, you can do that a lot faster than, than, than having a rank-and-file officer from the very beginning of an application process showing up. I'm in the process of getting prepared for re-election by the time the first group of officers show up, right? And so it's youth employment and, and really concentrating on youth employment. And I'm encouraged by the fact that you have corporations and businesses that are prepared and willing um, to lend support there. Every single agency, sister agency that we have jurisdiction over, um, prepared to make sure that we provide opportunities for young people. Again, 200 more detectives, making sure that the pilot program is expanded for mental health support so that we can have more smart strategic policing um, in the city of Chicago. These are the things that we can do immediately. Yeah, but they still have a... There, there's a tail on them that it's going to take some time. What about the summer? What about the choice of a superintendent? So someone that comes from the rank and file is going to be important. To Look, here's what police officers should have, why they should have some comfort with me on the fifth floor. It's because I know what it's like to serve on the front line as a public school teacher being asked to do your job and someone else's. Now, granted, the job of a police officer it's far more dangerous than a, than, than a teacher, right? But here we now have scenarios where, you know, teachers are also exposed to the type of trauma and violence that has, uh, has broken out uh, all over this country, especially with gun violence and it taking place inside of schools. And so you're going to have someone on the fifth floor who understands the value and the importance of actually having clarity around your job. Right now, we have supervisors who supervise the supervisors. You have police officers that will have a different supervisor, sometimes three to four in one week. Now, granted, they all might be part of a, a cadre of, 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 of law enforcement, but you know, every, every supervisor brings a different element, right? And so having some consistency around supervision is going to be important. And having a superintendent who understands um, what it means to be compassionate, collaborative, and someone who is competent. That's what what I'm going to look for, and that's who we're going to find uh, to serve as superintendent um, in the city of Chicago. And I'm very confident that we're going to find someone that gives confidence to the rank and file, but also understands constitutional policing. By the way, that's not only a wise insight, but good alliteration there with the uh, three C's. I like it. That's that's good. That's memorable. That's the son of a pastor. <laughs> I guess so. I bet that's right. Um, talk about education. Obviously, this is something you're steeped in. Tell me what your explain your your vision for education in the city because we've got underfunded schools we've got um, issues that I'd like to talk to you about about the the school buildings themselves uh, we, there are a lot of issues r- related to our schools tell me what you as mayor plan to do and what you can do there's going to be a transition to an elected school board fully by 2027 but you'll you'll have a lot of influence. First of all, I believe wholeheartedly in public education. I'm a product of the public education system. My children attend Chicago public schools. You know, again, you know, 
maybe another sort of historical note here. Um, I believe I'll be the first mayor of the city of Chicago who sends their children to the Chicago public schools. And so I'm deeply vested into our public education system. My desire, my vision for public schools in Chicago um, is to be really a world-class system that provides every single school community exactly what they need. And what that means is full wraparound services, the arts, um, of course, that includes music, making sure that we have um, starting earlier, we're talking about, and I would prefer to start even as early as middle school, fifth and sixth grade, exposing our children to manufacturing as well as the trades. I mean, the type of infrastructure that needs revitalization and um, a revival in the city of Chicago, we have to close the gap between graduation and economic opportunities. And those opportunities are and will be available. And sending children off to college, I know that's the goal for a lot of families. And we have to make sure that children um, who do not wish um, to go to college have training opportunities all the way up through community college that prepares them for the biotechnology, life sciences, logistics, all of these industries that are poised and prepared to set up shop here in the city of Chicago, that our education system prepares those individuals um, to experience the type of economic growth that will happen as a result of those industries. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. So the school system has structural debt. I mean, it's got, it's got, like, uh, it's got fiscal problems uh, that are chronic. And what you're describing is something that will cost money. I, and I look, I, it's a great vision. The question is, how do you do that? I want to ask you about a couple of things. One is you've said, you said during the campaign, maybe since the campaign, that you will not close any school in the city. We've got a school system that was really built for 500,000 students. We now have 330,000 students. And there are a lot of reasons for it that we probably don't have time to get into here, but that's just the reality. And so you have schools that are, uh, you know, very, very lightly populated. Uh, and so is that a is that is that a wise commitment to make, or do you want to leave some flexibility so as to make investments where investments can 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 benefit kids the most? There are um, there are proposals to build new schools in Chicago, mm-hmm. and, and, and new right. schools do get built, right? Right. And so when when you ask that question, I mean, I think the frame around this is centered around communities that have experienced loss. Right, because yeah. where schools are more likely to be closed, yes. school communities, communities where, that have already been disinvested. You, yeah. you understand, yeah. right? And so this is why I, I made think that's it why it hits it hits so hard when schools are closed. I understand that. And so, so now you have the same ritual of disinvestment that continues to 
to, to perpetuate without solving what ultimately is the cause of, of, of the, the flight or quite frankly, the force out or quite frankly, the removal uh, of people. And so this is why I believe it's important that we commit ourselves to a moratorium because we have to reimagine our school communities and the usage of these buildings, right? When we talk about job training and economic opportunities that will be available through housing development, um, through the, the, the transformation of our infrastructure, are we utilizing our school communities to the capacity and the extent in which they could be reimagined? And, 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 and I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm saying that there has to be a community process to begin to assess that. Now, there could be a dynamic where you have to make some decisions where you have to shift um, or reshift or redirect services so that it, it, it makes absolute sense. I'm saying before we react Let's make sure that we put forth a plan, have community involvement yeah. to determine ultimately what should happen in that particular. No, I, I listen. I think one of the mistakes that was made uh, back when you were active, uh, actively leading a school strike was, I think the community should have been involved in what's going to happen to these buildings and what how they might be used to benefit the community and so on. I, I think that's right. It's also true that you can maybe better and modern and well-equipped schools are more beneficial to the children than old than more older uh, antiquated uh, buildings but uh, the, the last thing on education I want to ask you about because I know your time is is limited you've said that you you want to do away with standardized kinds of testing and I, I'm wondering how do you measure progress how do you how are you going to measure success uh, are there what metrics will you use uh, to do that? Uh, is it is it graduation rates? Is it what students do after they leave the schools? Is it I, I don't know, but I'm, you're you're the educator. I'm asking. Well, listen. Let me just say this: standardized tests. Just understanding the history behind standardized tests, right? You know, this is built on the eugenics movement um, that was designed to prove that black people were inferior, right? So we we have to um, have that direct, honest conversation so that we do not look to these tests as a determinant for a child's development. Here's what testing should do, because I am an educator. Right. Assessments give you a better understanding of how a child has progressed or which skill set um, they perhaps need you know, more development around. It was never meant to punish anyone. And here's the part where I believe we've lost our way when it comes to public education and how standardized testing has been used to determine whether or not um, a teacher is worthwhile or whether a student um, is worthwhile. Because here's what standardized tests overwhelmingly tell us. They tell us more about the social economic status of a family than they do one's ability to actually be successful. And so testing should be used to assess progress, to see where there are areas of growth um, that, that, that could take place. But ultimately how we determine it, David, is, I believe in a full, rich portfolio of, of, of assessment that determines the, 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 the viability of a child's um, not just proficiencies, but their potential. So my son, Ethan, the middle child, brilliant. I mean, smart, really smart. He doesn't know where the dirty clothes basket is, <laughs> um, but he can balance equations. He's a critical thinker, just naturally gifted. My oldest son, who is highly intelligent, 
digital editing. He plays the violin. Um, he's a great athlete. But his test won't always indicate that, especially standardized tests. My daughter, more artistic. She's a critical thinker. Doesn't like bubble sheets, but she will write. She will draw it. Mm-hmm. Right? She will perform it. Mm-hmm. And, and so we've, we have this narrow approach um, that our education system has subscribed to. And what I'm saying is the best way to determine um, the, the growth of, and, uh, of our children is through not an achievement gap, but the economic gap that exists between our communities. But, but what, you, what I'm hearing you say is we do have to make assessments. We do have to understand where we are to uh in in order to to judge whether we're accomplishing what we need to accomplish with each child you 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 accept that of course and that should be used to guide our instruction not determine whether or not a child should be invested in because what we have done historically is that those assessments have determined whether or not a ch- a, a child's school should remain open so during the campaign you, uh, one of the things you said that caught my eye was that you saw the race as a, a, a battle between black labor and, and white wealth, I think was the phrase. And I'm, I was wondering what that meant. And I'm wondering now how you've proposed a series of tax increases. And you've argued, I mean, one of the reasons I think you've been successful is I think you believe what you say. And you've argued that uh, you think uh, people who do well should pay a little more to help deal with some of these problems. Now you're running the city. You're going around and meeting with business leaders. Uh, they're not as uh, enthusiastic about some of these. Uh, they may support your ideas about what needs to be done. They may not support the way you want to fund it. And it's not clear that Springfield will give you any of the things that you uh, that you want, despite your relationship with President Harmon. And the Speaker. And the Speaker. And the Governor. Well, yes. Yeah, no, I And the General Assembly. I okay. have a lot of friends in Springfield. I know you do. <laughs> I know, but friendship only goes so far, you'll find, uh, when, when it comes to some of, these, some of these issues. How are your meetings going with the business community, and what is the message that you are sharing with them, and what are you learning from them? Yeah, they're going well. Um, every single business, business leader that I've spoken to have said the same thing. Um, how can we help? Or they've asked the same thing. How can we help? And quite frankly, you know, the, the, the presentation of black labor, white wealth was based upon a book um, that I was referencing. And it's a book, a book that I would encourage people to read, Dr. Claude Anderson. And it, and it really lays out um, what, what, what's manifesting today, that for every $1 that a white family earns in the city of Chicago, a black family earns one cent. A brown family earns eight cents, right? So it was a 35% of Northsiders make $100,000 a year or more. And over half of West and Southsiders make less than $25,000 a year. And, and we know black and brown women overwhelmingly make up frontline workers, right? And so there is this dynamic that exists within the city of Chicago and quite frankly around the country where black labor, brown labor has not led to the type of wealth that non-black and brown families have experienced, right? And so that is a dichotomy that we have to deal with. And as far as, you know, the budget plan that I've laid out, here's what has to be stated and restated. It's a very basic democratic principle, right? 
President Biden said that a teacher and a firefighter should not pay the same tax rate as a millionaire or billionaire. Like, that's not a revolutionary idea. People yeah. looked at my budget plan as if it came out of, like, you know, somewhere out of space. It actually is a part of the democratic infrastructure that we believe in equity and justice. And those with means, they're not afraid to put more skin in the game. They just want to know that it's going um, to places that will um, yield the type of results that we want to see. And as far as the ideas that I've presented, Here's what I've said repeatedly, David, and the business community is okay with it. If you don't like a particular plan that I've put forth, let's just take one plan that said it would generate $20 million. If you don't like that plan, help me find $20 million. It's not that complicated. This is an idea that we get to debate over. Our values are our values. We don't negotiate our values, but we will negotiate the details of our presentation. And that's what the business community is excited about because they know I'm true to it. I, I want to ask you two very quick things personal uh, things. One is I was really moved uh, to hear the story. You had an older brother who died uh, on the streets, basically, uh, and it's not an uncommon story in America today, And but it must, it must shape some of your thinking on what we need to do. So tell me about that. Leon, he was my hero. He's our oldest brother, first person to go to college. And um, he struggled with untreated trauma. And years ago, we didn't have the language that we have today. And so he suffered in silence. And um, what was the trauma related to? A number of things, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, it's something that we're dealing with as a family, um, as we're older and, and far more thoughtful about how, um, you know, we have a responsibility to, to not just be vulnerable, but um, to be responsive to those vulnerabilities that oftentimes, particularly in the in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, things were, 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 it, it just, you didn't have the room and it wasn't safe always. Yeah. Um, How much is that related to your commitment on mental health? It's a, it plays a huge, a huge role, right? Mm -hmm. You know, my brother would be a grandfather today mm -hmm. and, you know, he's the person who played catch with me, right? My father was out, you know, working hard to, to raise us. Right. And so, you know, Leon was almost like we would call daddy a, you know, mm -hmm. right. And so, um, you know, my motivation to, to treat trauma, my motivation to make sure that we're not criminalizing addiction um, has a lot to do with my own personal experiences. Last uh, thing, I, I, I remember driving up right before the election of 2008 to a rally with President Obama, and there were 100,000 people there. A lot of them were holding up, remember that iconic sketch of him, said hope and change and all that. And he uh, turned to me and he said, you know, it's going to be impossible to meet everyone's expectations. Do you worry about that? Do you worry about just what the expectations are of the movement that you built and your ability to actually make good on the things that, that you've been proposing and talking about for a long time? I don't. I don't. I believe that our promises get to be as big as the city of Chicago. Now look, I mean, we're, we're grownups. And I do recognize that there are parameters in which we function in. And in some instances, it does, um, it does um, lend to limitations. Now, if you ask me four years from now, I may have a different response. But I mentioned Karen Lewis at the, on yes. at the beginning of this conversation. And I remember going in her office one particular day, and I had a rough one. And I, you know, I, I, I fumbled. <laughs> I'll say it like that. And she said, pick the ball up and keep running, Brandon. And, and I believe that's what the city of Chicago um, is poised and positioned to do.
it doesn't mean that we won't ever, you know, make some mistakes or maybe we have some miscues along the way. Um, but I don't think much about what we're not able to do. I think about just getting to the end zone. And, and, and then I hope that over these next four years, we can run up the score. My father also would leave this great advice, you know, with me and my brother. And when he started to, to rehab homes, um, he used me and my brother Jeremy the most. Um, he broke all childhood labor laws, right? It's probably the reason why I became such a strong <laughs> unionist. If I could have organized that 10, I would have definitely taken my father out on strike. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> he was a tough boss. But one day we were doing work and we didn't complete the task or we didn't do it to his expectation. And he looked at us and he said, sons, never be afraid to do a little bit of work. And he would always just say, it's just work. It's just work. And so... He's never had to run one of the largest economies in the world, but I'd keep the same mantra that, that it's work. And if we all do our part, um, I'm confident that we will fulfill um, the expectations that people have laid out for us. Well, I'm rooting for you. Thank you. And every Chicagoan should be rooting for you, Brandon. We're, it's uh, Congratulations and, and best of luck. Thank you so much. Great to see you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.